If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Liz Russell booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woddard and Jen McQueen. He can hear. No more talking behind Dad's back in the house. Here, Scott Thompson. Hello? Hello? Oh my God, I can hear. I can't believe that. Uh, and really, is there any feedback? I don't think. <laughs> can, you hear, can you hear me through my headphones? Uh, yeah! Uh, take a bow. Uh, good afternoon. It is 309. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. And uh, Will Weber on the board. The gang's all here. Uh, restart. Well, let's start at the beginning. The beginning is uh, the reason we are playing Sweet Home Alabama. In case you haven't heard, uh, the passing of Gary Rosington at the age of 71, the final original member of Leonard Skinner. And Eric Elper talked about this, that there are, and, and now that he has passed, there are no more original members of the band, yet they're still touring and still selling out, and uh, the rest is history, as they say. So we're going to talk about that with Eric coming up a little later on. At what point does the band stop becoming the band? We had this discussion before, and he used Leonard Skinner as an example. So uh, fascinating. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. And the reason uh, that we have broken into the countdown, uh, Rolling Stone, top 200 greatest singers of all time. And thank goodness for that. All right. Uh, <laughs> uh, thanks for joining us. And, and as you uh, may or may not even notice, probably didn't even notice, I was away for a couple of days. And um, I, I want to tell you the story and, and, and what exactly happened and uh, in navigating through the healthcare system with just something very, very minor. Uh, and, uh, well, it's huge for me, but minor when you're, you know, waiting for a hip replacement or a heart <laughs> or, a, or a hernia operation, as my brother-in-law uh, did. Oddly enough, both my brother-in-law and myself were under the knife on the exact same day getting surgery. How bizarre is that? Uh, anyway, so, um, I, you know, my hearing's been deteriorating forever. I went on holiday uh, back in November and lost complete hearing in uh, one year. So, you know, it's one thing to have it deteriorating and, you know, you're getting old, uh, wearing headphones, all this sort of stuff for too long, too loud, and now you're going to need hearing aids, but to have it stop right away was very much a, uh, a health concern. So, um, you know, going to the doctor, uh, finding out you've got to wait for like a, a, a year, then it was down to 10 months, and then whatever, whatever, just to get in. And then if you could get uh, an emergency referral or a hearing aid, um, hearing test that says basically your eardrum's not moving, <laughs> you got to fix that now. Um, and, you know, for anything that's an emergency like that, they, they whip through. So uh, anyway, um, so luckily got in on on Thursday to get this done, and um, and oddly enough, the same day that my brother-in-law is in getting his hernia surgery. Now he's had his delayed because there was he had COVID twice, I believe, so that pushed it back. So and then just the normal delays with the pandemic and the healthcare system. Um, but that being said, they are um, really trying to get wait times down and and get things straight 
streamlined, um, which is why, like, I was in Milton to get my procedure done. My brother-in-law lives in Hamilton, Waterdown, and they were, he went to Oakville to get it done. So, um, you know, you got to sort of make it all happen and such. But, you know, if there is an emergency, uh, luckily you can get in. Um, but what I really wanted to say in all of this, and, and you know, I got the surgery and, and uh, I'm on the mend. Um, but um, once you get in, it's an incredible, um, the people are incredible. They're just absolutely, and I cannot say enough about healthcare workers, uh, whether it's, you know, the people who are, uh, pushing you around in a wheelchair, um, and, and getting you to fill out forms or the, the, uh, doctors or the nurses or, uh, the, the anesthesiologist or, or whatever. Like they really, really, really go out of their way to, to make you feel comfortable and, and, and not scare the bejeebers out you, out of you, which, you know, anytime you walk into an operating room, it kind of has that look, right? So, um, you know, and, and I just can't say enough about that. So, you know, as we all gripe and, 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 and bitch and complain that, um, you know, our healthcare system is in the state that it is. And, and, and finally, finally making the changes or doing whatever we have to do, or at least moving in the right direction to, to address what needs to be done. Uh, once you're there and the people and, and the professionalism and, and the way you're treated, it's, um, it's incredible. So I want to say kudos to every single healthcare worker out there, no matter what the heck it is that you do. Um, once you get in the doors of, of the hospital and such, because they really, really are uh, a, a tremendous group and, and, and go over and above caring and, and helping you get through uh, what you need to get through, which is, is, is really, really, really encouraging to know, especially in the times that we're living in now. And, you know, people are very confused as to which way's up and what is going on. All right, enough of that. Uh, over the course of the show, coming up, we're going to talk about, uh, we talked about this before, uh, weeks ago. Ago, ArcelorMittal DeFasco um, using liquid natural gas to get rid of coal. We'll talk about that. TikTok, the drama continues there. We're going to touch on that. And uh, one year after the uh, slap at the Oscars, remember this, Chris Rock, he finally gets back and, um, and, and speaks about it during his Netflix special. And that, of course, has hit the media. We'll talk about that reaction coming up uh, a little later on. Also, over the weekend in the hammer, my goodness, a hotbed of political activity. Uh, we have the provincial liberals in town and also Pierre Polyevra, federal conservative leader in Stony Creek. So, uh, my goodness, uh, Hamilton is front and center again. We'll talk about that over the course of the afternoon at as well. We told you about this uh, great project that uh, came with a lot of flash and, and pomp and circumstance with the Prime Minister and the Premier uh, here in town at DeFasco, ArcelorMittal DeFasco, and, and talking about getting them off coal and using electricity to uh, be used in the production of steel rather than uh, obviously the piles and piles of coal that we see out on the, on the property. And, you know, this is an amazing uh, jump forward. And, uh, however, uh, many are surprised. And I guess in a sense, it really wasn't said during this, this hoopla that there would be needed a natural gas pipeline to bridge that gap, uh, as they get off coal. And, uh, recently they've been holding some open houses and such. And we've been, uh, uh, you know, hearing from concerned residents and organizations about this. And you really have to wonder what the alternative is moving forward. Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, professor of the group school of business at McMaster University.
University. He is with us now. Marvin, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well and glad to be with you. Marvin, we've talked about this before, and, and obviously this is a grand idea and a giant step forward. Are you surprised that so many are concerned about the building of this pipeline to bridge the gap? Or should this have been more forthright? I don't even remember hearing about this during the actual news conference, but should that have been talked about then? Uh, the short answer is probably, to make it clear, although frankly all of us don't really understand technology, and certainly in steelmaking, all the fine points, I'm not sure it would have made a big difference. So there was an open house around this uh, uh, pipeline that is going to be constructed in the year 2025. So this is 2023. It's going to be constructed two years from now. The pipeline, and it's like 14 kilometers long, is going to be built along road allowances. So it's not taking over virgin land. This is land beside the highway, which was set aside for this kind of work. So it's not exactly something new there. And at a most recent open house, people who've been concerned raised about three questions. Question number one, why natural gas? Why not hydrogen? Hydrogen could also meet some of the energy needs. And this was an open house being held by Enbridge. This is the company that would be supplying the natural gas. But to me, that question would be much better asked of DeFasco. This wasn't a DeFasco open house. This was an Enbridge open house. And Enbridge said, look, we're not really in the position to be supplying hydrogen in that quantity at this time. And the pipeline that you need to build to supply hydrogen is quite different from the pipeline you need to build uh, to supply natural gas. So uh, really, we can't answer that question. And I think uh, DeFasco has tried to answer it by saying this is something we're going to be looking at after 2030. So this is a longer range technology that they'll look at and they'll deal with it at that time. Uh, a second question, Scott, that was raised about this was, look, uh, uh, sure, this is going to reduce the admissions uh, emissions by DeFasco by 60%. <coughs> it actually achieves 55% of Hamilton's personal goals on trying to reduce emissions. But, you know, is that good enough? Uh, in this day and age, shouldn't we even be trying to strive for something better? And, and again, the answer is yes. I think we should be trying to strive for something better. But look, uh, getting rid of 60% of someone's emissions, getting 55% of our way, I, I think that's, that's a great step forward. And I, I don't think it's the final step, but it's certainly an intermediate step. And then, of course, the last question was, why are we not just trying to be zero emission, net zero as we go? This doesn't seem to do it. And it felt to me a bit like the people who attended this were looking for a platform to share their views, but they were asking questions of Enbridge that Enbridge itself can't really can't answer this was they were contracted by DeFasco to supply this alternate energy source to help with this move forward and and it's not it's not really their fault they're trying to supply gas in a purpose-built pipeline that's going to deliver it at 25 times the pressure that you'd get in a normal pipeline to our house to bring natural gas to our house so uh, again Marvin will play devil's advocate here why are they just not producing hydrogen now Marvin why is this just not all hydrogen well, of course, the answer is there's no demand at this moment. So uh, this is the old chicken and egg thing. We don't want to produce a product that people aren't demanding. No one has been demanding hydrogen at this point. There's a lot. Wait a sec. Wait a sec, Marvin. Wait a sec, Marvin. Hang on a sec, Marvin. Hang on a sec, Marvin. Um, but it's zero emissions. I, 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 from what I understood, it's not a case that there isn't the demand for it. It's a case that in order to produce it, it consumes as much energy as the fuel it's replacing. 
Well, I mean, there's there's both sides of this question. How do you produce hydrogen? It's not something you mine uh, from the ground. It's something you have to create. We can easily create mm -hmm. it from water, but there's a cost to do it. But there's also not really much demand. We don't have many cars that run on hydrogen. Stelco doesn't have, or excuse me, DeFasco doesn't have the technology today to make it with hydrogen. So as a fuel, it does provide energy, but it's just not something anyone's demanding. And uh, Enbridge is saying correctly that they have been experimenting with producing some hydrogen. They have been trying to see what it could do out there. But this is early, early days in an alternate fuel that there just really isn't any other demand for. So they're arguing that the company that uh, the customer who contracted them said, we want natural gas and they have lots of natural gas. Happy to supply it. Um, um, again, going back to the demand is not there. Is it a case that the demand's not there because it's not efficient enough yet? It still produces more than what it's replacing. Is that, you know, because again, everybody's looking for a clean fuel. So why would you, I'd put that in my car tomorrow if it would work. Um, so the demand is there. It's, the, it's just the process to create this, uh, fuel out of the element is still too, too expansive. Yeah. I think, I mean, there's all sides of this question. One, you're right, uh, um, but would you rush to put in hydrogen? The last time we were using hydrogen in any significant quantities, you remember we had lighter-than-air balloons that burst the great Hindenburg right. disaster because of hydrogen. Yes, I believe the technology has improved, but it's not as common as you'd like to think it is. So in terms of commercially using this as in a fuel source, uh, there just hasn't been that much work done. Yes, it's also expensive to produce, but any times you're doing something in small quantities is expensive. You can scale it up, and once you start producing in a bigger volume, the cost will come down. But it's just, to me, it's too early. It's the kind of technology that I think we're going to talk a lot more about in the next decade, in the 2030s, heading towards 2040. It's just too early in that process. And so uh, if I'm DeFasco, I need a technology that works today. Part of it, of course, remember, is they're going to use electricity to help try to produce uh uh, the steel that they're going to use and melt the, the various ingredients, but they need another fuel source. And this is that step in that direction. So I, again, I call it an intermediate step. It's not a perfect step, but by gosh, anytime I could snap my fingers and get rid of 60% of the emissions uh, and from one of the biggest mm. polluters in the province, I think I'm going to take that. Marvin Ryder with us, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University. Uh, Marvin, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. I will. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The TikTok drama continues. Doesn't seem to affect usage in my house whatsoever. Anyway, uh, the company behind the app says that the ban from the federal government is just a result of its feud with China. We've never heard that before. Huawei. Uh, and uh, obviously, uh, another ban has surfaced. The city of Hamilton saying it's going to uh, remove uh, TikTok from its devices. Anybody who has a uh, city owned device, uh, it's just out of an abundance of caution. And also saying that uh, Hamilton Police Service are going to uh, pull off of it as well until they hear more from um, uh, the privacy commissioner on all of this. All right. Where, where do we go from here? And what does it say about you and me if everybody else in large corporations or organizations are doing this. Let's bring in uh, Ted Crisanis, tech journalist. He is with us now uh, by Ted.com, uh, by TeddyK.com to find out more. Ted, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Good. Good to hear from you, Scott. How are you? 
Good. So what are your thoughts on this? Uh, is this overreaction? Is it uh, about time? Um, and where, where do you think this is going? Is this just uh, a matter of time before it's, it ceased to exist? Well, there's a bit of a domino effect going on here. This is not the first time we've seen something like this happen. India was the first country that I'm aware of that put out a ban uh, back in 2020. Taiwan followed last year. Uh, we've had the European Union do it. Uh, we know about you know the U.S. at the federal government level has done it. Some states have as well. Uh, so it's a bit of a domino effect, but I think it's also preemptive, right? It's like, okay, well, if these other guys are doing this, then maybe we should as well. And of course, as you mentioned, I think in the intro, you can't you can't discount the geopolitical element of this because that's I think that's a huge part of it. Uh, I think there's a viewpoint that whether it's right or wrong or accurate or not, it's hard to tell, especially with a country as opaque as China is, whether or not the symbiotic relationship that is alleged between corporations there and the, the government there is, in fact, as tight as it's alleged to be. I don't know if it is. I'm not sure if the people who are instituting these bans know that either, but they're maybe hedging their bet that if they are right about that, that at least they made a move early. Uh, so does this make any sort of dent in a company like TikTok? Um, uh, obviously, it's worldwide. This is a small uh, player, uh, a small amount of, of users, I guess, when you come to federal devices. But if, like you said, the domino effect starts happening in other countries, other organizations, uh, ban it from their from their platforms, from their devices and such, will this have some any sort of monetary effect on them? Not in the short term. I mean, in the short term, definitely yeah. not. And the reason why is simply because the people who use TikTok, especially the demographics that use it the most, they don't they don't really care about geopolitics yeah. by and large, I imagine. Um, and the corporations that like to advertise to those demographics are going to have a hard time pulling away from the dollars, you know, the money that comes in from all that. So. Uh, money, as we know, usually talks in these situations. And I, I just, first of all, I can't see a flat out ban. Like, for example, I can't see the Biden administration or any administration in the U.S. government basically saying, OK, you know, we're just banning this platform completely from the country. We just can't run it. Uh, there'd be lobbying against that that I'm sure would make sure that that never happens. And also, I don't know how effective that would be because people would still access it anyway. Right. Like you can say you can try to ban an app, but people are still going to get to it, which is exactly what happens in countries that have these types of authoritarian policies. Right. right. I mean, there's a bit of an irony here. Google, uh, sorry, um, China bans things like Google, but there are users in China who access Google using VPNs and other methods. So it's it's interesting how, in a way, this kind of this kind of mirrors the sort of thing that China does with apps it doesn't like. Uh, obviously, we saw the uh, Five Eyes remove Huawei from any sort of backbone in their 5G systems. Eventually, Canada did file suit, although I think the corporations moved on well before that. Um, what's the difference between this, uh, you know, the TikTok situation and the Huawei situation? So to me, uh, the Huawei case was uh, the issue they had with Huawei was on the the commercial side of the business, meaning the part that was building infrastructure, telecommunications infrastructure, uh, you know, antennas, things like that, that the the concern was, OK, if this company is building all this technology, you know, all this equipment, this hardware 
how do we know that they might not be able to, you know, might not be a back door that they can tap into? Now that had never been proven. Uh, there was no smoking gun or, 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 you know, that, that proved that, but that was the concern there. Whereas with TikTok, what you have is an app that's, so it's a, more of a user generated situation where the, the concern is that they'll somehow tap into the data that people are, are creating by using, by using the app and consuming the app. Um, so both, both issues or both concerns were data driven, but they were driven in a different way. One was largely hardware. The other is largely user based. And, and so they're, it's kind of, they're, they're, I don't know if you, they're conflating the two, but I, I get your point because I feel the same way in that it, it is a lot. It's kind of going down the same lane, uh, that the Huawei thing was. And uh, I'm not sure though how this will turn out because Huawei, you know, people weren't really, weren't connected to Huawei in that way. Right. Whereas with TikTok, you try to take it away from people. I, I don't know. I feel like there would be a backlash. <laughs> yeah. Coming into, into my house, you'll see that right here with the kids. Uh, what about replacement? Why is someone not just coming up with the next great TikTok replacement? Be, well, because TikTok replaced something else. I mean, TikTok, Facebook was most concerned about TikTok, which is why they lobbied against it. Facebook, Facebook loves that TikTok is banned in, in certain respects, right? Um, Facebook would welcome a blanket ban on TikTok because it helps their business. So sooner or later, there's going to be something else that comes along that is going to compete and disrupt TikTok and what it's doing. We don't know what it is yet, but it, it is going to happen because inevitably that's, that's how it's been. And we've already seen that happen, right? I mean, Facebook came, TikTok comes along, does it better and seems to just uh, engage with people in a different way or they engage with it in a different way. And well, here we go. Uh, we have something that's really disruptive that happens to come from the country that is also in geopolitical tension with, with some of, uh, some of the major powers of the world. So, um, it, it's, it's inevitable. Something else will come along, uh, who that is, where it comes from and when it happens is unknown. Uh, but, um, but yeah, that's pretty much the trajectory that we can expect. Are people working on this right now, considering the attention this is getting? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure they were working on it before because if you yeah. if you are a startup and you're looking at what TikTok is doing and you feel that you have a better way of doing it, you're going to pursue that because you're going to feel like, hey, their market's huge. It's still growing. We can probably get a piece of that, and if possible, if we are lucky and we do it the right way, maybe we can we can go viral and go big too. So, I mean, it's standard, right? Like every startup, or more or less every startup, has grandiose ideas about where they can go the sky's the limit and i don't think there's any anything changes as far as how some some companies that we don't know of right now uh, might be looking at this and seeing an opportunity ted chrisanis with his tech journalist tiktok drama continues ted thanks for the time and insight much appreciated be well thanks for thanks for having me same to you scott when there's an issue scott is all in on getting to the heart of it this is with Scott Thompson on Hamilton's News Today's Talk 900 CHML. People like did it hurt? It still hurts. <laughs> I got summertime ringing in my ear. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Uh, it was a year ago, uh, roughly, that uh, Chris Rock was uh, on stage at the Oscars, uh, and he's talking about Will Smith's wife. Will Smith got upset. 
and started yelling some things. The next thing you know, he's uh, walking on stage and smacks Chris Rock in the face. And the rest is history, as they say. Uh, Chris didn't really talk much about it at the beginning, other than, you know, obviously acknowledging it and said he would have something to say when it's time to release your, net, your next Netflix special. And as you can hear, that has happened. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert. She is with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, I am doing well. Thanks, Scott. So the question, first question I was going to ask you is, why do we still care about this? And then I'm thinking, well, you moron. Someone just slapped a guy. An actor just slapped another actor on the Oscars. So I guess that's why we're still talking about this. Well, I think we're still talking about it because there was no resolution. And Chris Rock has played this to a point where we want to hear his side. And it was such a uh, an odd thing to see. I mean, really, it was the slap heard across the world. And it was all anybody, including you and I, Scott, could really talk about it. Because who would ever actually try to deck somebody in the middle of the, uh, the Oscars? Not only that, I mean, there's a number of things at play here. Number one, I believe the Oscars are this weekend. Number two, Netflix just paid Chris Rock, I believe, $40 million for two of these live specials. So if they're, mm-hmm. if this is the second one and it's worth $20 million, you better give them the goods. So I think that there's a lot of things. And uh, most importantly, I believe it's public um, curiosity. It's satiating the you know, public's need to know. And I think that the public is really eating this one up. And I wanted to know. I wanted to know what Chris Rock th- thought. And I know a lot of people who actually went to go see him live. And everybody sits on the edge of their seats thinking, oh, maybe he'll talk about it now. But he didn't. So it it has sort of had this a bit of a suspense for us all. And um, I don't think he disappointed. Is that it? Is it over now? Is the issue done? You know, I think that it is probably done. Uh, you know, Chris Rock has had his say. The amount of play that he has gotten um, as a result. First of all, this is the first time Netflix has ever, um, you know, streamed anything live. I believe this is the first time. So that was a bit groundbreaking for that streaming service. Um, The second thing is look at the reverberations of this story as a result of him coming out with what he finally had to say. You know, I mean, in order to determine if something really had legs or if it was a a very successful media campaign, you look at the number of impressions, the number of people talking about it and continuing to talk about it. So really, we're in about uh, the second day of the news cycle regarding this, and people will probably still be talking about it all the way up until the Oscar performance. So really, Chris Rock has played this as horrible as it was uh, when it happened. He has played this to his absolute advantage. And as for Will Smith, he just wants to move on. That was my next question. Uh, Where does that leave him, his career? How does he react to this? It'd be interesting to see. I mean, I haven't seen a reaction from him yet at all. Uh, I think that probably his counselors are saying, or his PR counselors are saying, you know, just lie low and let's, you know, let's just see where this goes. And it really wasn't, you know, he's apologized. And so what was, you know, Chris Rock supposed to say? I accept the apology. I don't think he said that, but I think that he finally gave his, um, you know, his two cents about it. But I think that if there is sort of one segue that they can 
both agree upon is what he did say when he says the ultimate sin was don't let this happen in front of white people. And I think that that while we laugh at that, I think that there are some commentators saying that that is probably the most important line that's come out of this. Good point. Uh, Oscars this year, how do they handle this? I wonder if they'll still talk about it. Um, probably they will. I think people will expect that somebody will say something. It'll Is be Chris Rock going to make an appearance? Do you think he will? You know what? Wouldn't that be interesting? It'd be great for the broadcast. Yeah. I'll tell you that much. Yeah. Um, you know, when you think about the Oscars right now, honestly, can you even think of five films that, you know, were up for best film? We don't know anymore. Yeah. And the Oscars have certainly um, lost its relevancy. I remember, you know, when we were younger, we'd be like, oh my gosh, the Oscars, huge, huge, huge. Yeah. And, you know, now you think, gee, who's up for an Oscar? Do I care? Have I seen it? Is it too niche for me? You know, so the Oscars really have a, a, an issue with people not not necessarily consuming movies the way they once did. All right. Can't let you go without your thoughts on TikTok and the drama that's come up there. Obviously, government removing its, uh, asking its employees to remove this from their devices. City of Hamilton, Hamilton Police Service doing the same thing. What are your thoughts? I think it's the right thing to do. I mean, you know, we've always had very, very tenuous relationships with a tenuous relationship with China. And people have always said, you know, with TikTok, it's, you know, it's more about, um, you know, the Chinese scooping up our all our information. And we kind of laugh that off and think, okay, well, of course they are. But if you're really going to take that seriously, then you really have to take it seriously on, uh, you know, public officials who, you know, may or may not be or somehow, you know, surreptitiously be you know, have information that can be accessed or we don't know is being accessed. So I think that for caution is caution's sake. I think it's the right move. What do you think this does for TikTok? I mean, will this go the way of the Huawei when all of a sudden, you know, he just kind of disappears? What do you think is going to happen? You know, when I look at media watchers and I read sort of trends, people say, does TikTok have its longevity? Some people say yes, and most people say no. And I think that what's going to be coming, um, like, you know, these things go in waves. Remember, people used to do Vines, Scott, and Mm. that was sort of long-form video. And then that was the greatest thing. Somebody bought up the technology, then he never heard of Vines again. So I think that all of these things tend to have a shelf life. And people say that it's getting more into long-form social media, so things on YouTube where people want more information versus just snippets of information. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out because at some point, Scott, everything is just the flavor of the day. Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert, slapping at the Oscars and TikTok. Alyssa, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Well, you know, Hamilton has uh, been quite the hotbed for political uh, activity of late. Uh, the prime minister, of course, stopping by. Uh, there's an upcoming by-election in order to replace uh, the seat left vacant by Andrew Horvath, which he ran for mayor. A uh, liberal annual meeting was held here over the weekend at the convention center. And as well, Pierre Polyevra, conservative, federal conservative leader, uh, was in Stony Creek as well. Why all the fuss about Hamilton? Let's bring in Peter Grant, professor of political science at McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thanks for your time. Hope you're well. I am, thanks. So what are your thoughts of Hamilton uh, being in the forefront, it seems, of late? Are, are we coming into our own, or is, is this an area worth battling over? Well, I mean, I think for things like, you know, the Liberal Party holding their, uh, their convention at the Concord Centre, uh, and the NDP has done that before. I think it's because it's cheap space in the GTA. <laughs> I think in some ways it's as easy as that. 
know, where you can get an inexpensive a place to hold a convention and have hotel rooms nearby. Um, but, you know, for Pierre Polievre coming to Hamilton East, uh, Stony Creek, I think it has a lot to do with where the Conservatives feel they need to win uh, if they're going to form government after the next election. And uh, I'm sure Hamilton East, Stony Creek is on their list of ridings. They finished second there in the last federal uh, campaign ahead of the NDP. And of course, provincially, they won it uh, just this past spring. So, you know, that would look like a seat that if they were going to to form a government that, you know, probably chase after, you know, and the fact that you have, you know, a former longtime city councillor uh, in Chad Collins holding it at the moment, but seemingly unable to, you know, uh, end up in cabinet. It's maybe also an indication that, uh, you know, there's a weakness there that they can capitalize on. So people wonder why, again, you know, Chad Collins is being overlooked. Uh, at this point, is it Pierre Polyevra's campaign federally to lose once this all starts? Because obviously we're seeing where the polling is going. That being said, there's only one that counts. That's election day. But has it come to the point where um, he's got this as long as he doesn't shoot himself in the foot? What can he do to, to drive this home or to unite Canadians? Yeah, I mean, I think Polyevra, I mean, is looking good in the polls, but in many ways it's, uh, you know, on a long string of, uh, you know, liberal own goals and uh, a government that's looking really tired. And so between now and the next election, you know, the, the federal liberals could discover a second wind or, you know, Trudeau might leave and then, you know, it'd be a very different framework. So there's still a lot of cards that I think are out of Polyevra's control. Uh, you know, I think Paul Yevra has uh, the difficulty of having a base uh, who he's able to mobilize, and he's been very successful in mobilizing, but probably doesn't look exactly like the voters that he has to win if he's going to win government. And so he has, I think, uh, the difficult uh, task of trying to put forward a set of ideas that are going to be attractive, you know, particularly in the GTA, um, but that don't alienate his own base. Uh, you know, so how do you, how does he kind of deal with? You know, a group of people who are really uh, keyed on the idea of defunding the CBC, uh, you know, of, of the importance of, uh, you know, a significant uh, tax cuts, uh, a significant change in, in the role of government in Canada. You know, and people in the GTA who are a bit worried about uh, their standard of living at the moment and their job security, but actually probably aren't looking then to be experimenting with really radical solutions and are probably looking for a much more competent government, and they're upset. You know, they're upset with Trudeau because he hasn't delivered that. So, how Paul ever I think, uh, puts those two together will be uh, one of his challenges. Uh, Five thirty this afternoon. There's a uh, a news conference uh, called uh, by the Prime Minister. We're not aware what that is about at this point, but it seems uh, an odd time to be calling one, and we're trying to find out more on that. Uh, that being said, Peter um, uh, Jagmeet Singh, leader of the NDP, has said he's he hasn't come right out and said that he uh, won't longer won't won't support the government any longer if there isn't an investigation, a committee formed, or or what have you uh, into election interference where where does this leave jugmeet singh in the ndp yeah i mean uh, i think ultimately you know that may be what we'll have the uh, press conference about i mean mm-hmm. we've seen uh, singh and Bolievra come out and both uh, and, and the leader of the bloc as well and calling for an independent inquiry and so you know parliament may kind of voice that on the government and trudeau's maybe trying to get ahead of that but yeah in terms of of the debate i mean singh is in a kind of tough spot in some ways you know, he can be see himself as the inheritor of the, the dreams that brought Trudeau to power in 2015. And he can point to things like uh, progress on dental care 
you know, as a sign that voting for the NDP actually, you know, moves those things forward. And so if there's a lot of unhappiness with the Liberals, I think he can probably pick up the, the left wing piece of that. Um, but yeah, at the same time, if it really just becomes a change election and getting rid of Trudeau, uh, he's likely to be swamped in that kind of election. Uh, let's move on to the Ontario Liberals. That was the other story, obviously, the weekend holding uh, a convention here uh, in Sunch. Uh, obviously, a lot of work for them to do at the provincial level. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a weird one, because if you ask Ontarians, you know, which party they identify with most, uh, the Liberals probably come first. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. the last two elections have been completely unable to trans, you know, transfer that latent identification into votes. Uh, you know, and there were some signals in, in, in the weekend that they have some significant organizational uh, shortcomings, specific, you know, especially outside of the, the greater Toronto area. So I think a big challenge for them will be to, to find a way to, to develop, you know, bases in parts of Ontario, which were key to them winning under McGuinty in 2003, but which got frittered away as, as that uh, government went along. Moving to a one-member, one-vote leadership uh, contest rule, as they, you know, uh, seem to have adopted, uh, you know, may help them sign up more members. But the question is, will they just be still a whole bunch of people in Toronto, or there, will there be incentives for them to try and understand that, uh, you know, Ontario is more than just Toronto, and that you have to, you know, pay attention even to Hamilton, <laughs> let alone, uh, you know, going down to Windsor uh, or up to Sault Ste. Marie or, uh, or or Thunder Bay. I mean, there's. There's a very kind of limited and urban sense of the province in the, the Ontario Liberal Party, and they have to find a way, I think, of thinking outside of that. Peter Grant with us, professor of political science, McMaster University, talking about all things political. Peter, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. And you too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Should there be a public inquiry into election interference? Uh, the opposition parties are saying, yes, there should be. And as a matter of fact, Jagmeet Singh has alluded that he and the NDP may pull support for the Liberal Party if there is not a uh, public inquiry into this. That being said, we're just learning out, uh, finding out now that uh, there is a news conference with the Prime Minister originally scheduled for 515 now been bumped back to 530 so we'll try to cover that uh if we can if that has anything to do with this we are not sure uh but it certainly looks uh interesting uh considering the timing of all of this uh and uh, obviously the prime minister not wanting to call a public inquiry saying enough's been done with these committees however then we're finding out the person who's writing reports uh was actually head of the uh trudeau foundation when um they we're making Chinese Communist Party making donations to such. So where does this leave us? Let's bring in Gordon Holden, Director Emeritus China Institute, Professor of Political Science, University of Alberta, and with us now. Gordon, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Scott, for so, having me on. We're hearing that, uh, certainly from uh, the government, that uh, this is sensitive information. They can't get into it. Should there be a public inquiry? Well, if you make me jump one way or the other, I guess I'd probably be inclined to say yes, but with a couple observations. First, a fully transparent public inquiry I don't think is can be in the cards. You're dealing with tightly held top-secret documents, secret documents, methods, sources. Um, having that in the public purview is, is, to me, not optional. However, there's been... Issues in the past and dealing with intelligence, there's a there's a 
uh, review mechanism for the activities of CSIS, a board which uh, oversees their, their work. I think if they got the right person or people, this could be done in a fashion. If you, my worry is if you don't do anything, Scott, is how do you reassure the public that our elections are secure? And uh, even if that report cannot let every detail be out to the public, which I'm certain it won't be able to, at least it might achieve the goal of, of reassuring the public that the elections are, are trustworthy, but you've got to pick the right person, of course. And not only that, does it not look, Gordon, if he does not do anything, does it not look like uh, he is benefiting from this? Because there have been allegations against his MPs about this uh, influence and such. Uh, many have asked why he always has this soft on China approach. Is it because it is benefiting him and the liberals? It's hard to know. I mean, clearly, uh, his father... Had, had a real fascination with China. Fair enough. I have a fascination mm-hmm. with China. Uh, it's not quite the same thing as being tough or not tough. Um, but I think the inquiry again actually might actually serve his purposes uh, if it, um, uh, depending on what the outcome was, uh, if it showed there was no significant interference, etc. But it's going to be very hard to tell because even with the best of information that CSIS has, and even our allies have, um, if you have evidence of Chinese mission as having done X, Y, and Z, it's going to be very hard to determine what was the effect of that. Uh, was it ineffectual? Was it significant? But I think it has a salutary effect, and hopefully it'll tell missions, not just the Chinese, but anyone else who was, might be inclined to interfere, to beware, or at least to be more careful. Uh, so I guess on balance, yes, I would say, uh, but expectations of the public may be for something wholly transparent, and I would certainly oppose that. Uh, we can't burn our sources and and uh, undo the good work that's being done by CSIS by having it all there on the front page of a newspaper. Uh, as you said, Gordon, how uh, we may not never know. We may only know limited amounts. But most importantly, how do we stop it? How how do we like? Is there is it this about a registry that needs to be done, similar to the UK and the US and such? What should we be doing to be proactive here? Well, I read. Re- a registry could happen. It's a slightly different thing, though. That's really just trying to get at um, who might have achieved fun. And if someone doesn't register and they do something that's untoward at the behest of a foreign government, they'll be known. I'm actually in favor of transparency where any money that comes into political parties uh, or even to think tanks, uh, even my own for that matter, or any other, um, we should know where that money's coming from, not just from China, but from anywhere else. I've, some people have drawn attention in the past to anti-pipeline groups that received uh, funding. Some of these even individual MPs have received funding from anti-pipeline groups. So I agree, transparency is a good thing. And if those reports are being made public every March 31st or December 31st, uh, journalists such as yourself, members of the public could go and have a look at that and form their own opinions. As well, I think there has to be some tough actions taken on a carefully taken uh, regarding to individuals foreign or domestic, uh, who may be um, attempting to influence our, our, our elections. They're the core of our democracy. Uh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, who obviously has an agreement with the government to keep it in power, has said this might be enough to shake that partnership. As I mentioned, there's a news conference coming up at 5.30. Do you think, uh, what do you think that discussion is like? Well, that pressure would be significant given with a, um, I'm more of a China person than a than a 
electoral politics expert, but just looking at it as a as a layman, clearly it's a hot issue. Clearly, with a minority government, the prime minister needs NDP support. Uh, NDP can read the polls and see the sensitivity of this issue and where the public opinion is at. So that might be the that might have been the decisive factor that tips towards a, a public inquiry. And again, to my mind, a public inquiry that's fairly conducted by somebody who's absolutely first-rate and trustworthy, um, done it in our partisan fashion, um, let the chips fall where they may. It may well turn out that there's the, the prime minister was right. It may turn out that he's wrong. Uh, I would say let's just find out and then see where we end up. Uh, how is China reacting to this? Because it's not just elections. It's just interference in, in Canadian life in general. We've, we've talked about universities and the money that they accept over the years. There's been some, uh, uh, some more focus on that as well. How is China reacting to uh, this change in, in the love affair? Well, more broadly, as you say, I mean, China had high hopes that it would be a golden age. They used that word uh, when the current prime minister was elected. It hasn't turned out that way at all. Uh, they don't like a lot of things we, we have done. They don't like the Indo-Pacific strategy. Uh, they don't like the um, walking away from a free trade agreement, although uh, the conditions with the two sides were so far apart, that was probably inevitable. And, of course, they don't like this latest round of attention which they judged to be unfair and, and uh, discriminatory and, uh, and the falsehoods. Um, I mean, I, I, it's not, that was sort of a predictable uh, result. But generally, they're very unhappy with the way that uh, uh, the relations have not turned in a, in a manner which they were fairly confident would happen uh, with the election of, uh, of um, the son of the man who established relations with the PRC uh, at the get-go. Um, obviously, we're learning uh, allegedly that uh, the Chinese Communist Party wanted a liberal minority that works best for them and then tried to influence those situations which would help them achieve that. Where does the NDP factor into all of this? I, I think it hasn't really been central to, to Chinese thinking. And of course, I'm taking at face value what those the accuracy of those reports that were published in the Global Mail. And if, as you say, and it is credible, all right, that they favored one party over the other. Um, I think that a uh, uh, now they the reports say suggest that they wanted a liberal minority government. I wonder about that because, to my experience, minority governments don't really have the capacity to change too much. Mm-hmm. A strong majority government, you think, might be more in their uh, to their liking. I think the NDP they. Certainly, they follow Canadian politics very closely. Our embassy in Beijing follows Chinese politics very closely, and they will be aware of their role. But I think they've put uh, greater emphasis on uh, someone they know, a party they know, uh, rather than the NDP. But uh, uh, I could well be wrong. I haven't spoken to any Chinese diplomat or I haven't seen any reference uh, to the NDP in the current um, Chinese commentary that's on this on this issue. Gordon Holden with us, Director Emeritus of China Institute of uh, and Professor of Political Science, University of Alberta, talking about whether there should be a public inquiry uh, in regard to election interference. And don't forget, coming up at 5.30, a news conference from the Prime Minister. Gordon, thank you for the time, as always. Be well. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Scott. 
If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. It's just coming out of Global News. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is asking MPs and senators and Parliament's National Security Committee to launch a new investigation of foreign interference in Canada. Two Liberal sources who were granted anonymity to discuss this matter and not yet public confirmed to the Canadian press that Trudeau will announce the news on Parliament Hill later today. We have informed there will be a news conference coming up around 5.30. We uh, suspected that this is what it would be about, uh, and it certainly looks that way. So we'll, we'll uh, go to that at 5.30 or as soon as the uh, Prime Minister appears. In the meantime, to get his take, let's bring in Tim Powers, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data. You heard the great big C. He's with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing all right, Scott. How are you? I'm doing well. A 5.30 news conference on a Monday from the Prime Minister. What does this say to you, Tim? Well, if for anybody who still watches nightly news, Scott or hears their newscast while driving home, he certainly wants to dominate the airwaves and suggest that he's got um, better control of this issue than his critics would suggest that he has. I suspect he will say the reason that this is the best body to study this is because they all have national security clearance. They can dive in in great detail, um, and this will allow for a fulsome overview. The problem that he will get pushed back at him is that's great, Prime Minister, but um, if these people can't, uh, they can review it, that's wonderful, but if they can't tell us anything, how is that going to address the the concerns that Canadians have about all of this? Uh, a simple directive from the committee saying all is fine, or here are the three things that you have to worry about, probably won't do the trick. So that's will be the critique and that will be the uh, the opportunity that Justin Trudeau was trying to address. So is this Tim do you uh, Tim do you think this is going to be a full blown neutral public inquiry or is this another committee well, because the security committee knows Scott because that committee exists already right there is right. a national security committee that exists parliamentarians who have national security and, uh, credentials so that is not a public inquiry that is a very different thing i you know i don't know what he's going to say at 5:30 about wetting uh, or feeding that demand for uh, filling the public appetite for uh, more information that uh, that is out there. Uh, will the committee be enough rather than the public inquiry, uh, considering um, the last report we had was done by the guy that was uh, head of the Trudeau Foundation when the Chinese Communist Party was making the donations? So many have screamed that's not good enough and that a committee won't do it. A public inquiry is needed. So really, is he just not holding a news conference to tell us what he's already going to tell us or well, what he's already told us? Though, to be fair to them about this mm-hmm. committee, is it? does have opposition members of parliament on it. So right. it is uh, MPs from uh, the, certainly from the Conservatives and the New Democrats, I believe from the Bloc as well. They are um, they are fully credentialed. They are nominated by their parties to be part and parcel of this committee. This committee's existed for a long time. Um, the challenge that those MPs will have from the parties that I've talked about and, and from the governing party that are part and parcel of this committee is they cannot chair um, anything that is extremely classified or, you know, there'll be levels of classification as to what they can share and not share with, with anybody, uh, in their, uh, in their orbit. So. Well, we have to go through. 
Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I said, so then again, that, that, that makes it difficult, right? So if MPX from Hamilton is on the committee and MPX from Hamilton is told, yes, the Chinese did interfere, here's what they did, but you can't say anything about that because it might interfere oper- with operations we have right now, then they cannot. If they do, they are subject to uh, significant uh, criminal punishment. Can't you find out if there has been interference without exposing some big, dark, natural uh, national secret? Can we not get to the bottom of this without, you know, uh, putting people's lives in danger? I mean, it's about interference. Right. And that's what they hoped. I think uh, they could get a, that they hoped that the expert panel, which Mr. Rosenberg, who we spoke about last week, and he just referenced a moment ago, ran the Trudeau Foundation, you know, that was the panel that was supposed to give the public comfort. That did not work. Um, so now you'll go to the National Security Committee of Parliament, uh, parliamentarians, uh, to see if that will do the trick with the broader public. But I think I've heard Pierre Polyev say today, anticipating that the Prime Minister might make this move, that that won't be enough for him. Because again, uh, Member X, who could be his member of Parliament, cannot brief him on what he has learned mm. at that committee, unless Polyev himself uh, gets sworn in uh, and uh, gets the right national security credentials and uh, is then briefed himself. But then he can't talk right. broadly uh, about anything that is uh, confident. Well, what again, whatever the classification is. So uh, conservatives say they won't go for this. What about NDP? What about the NDP factor here? Well, Jagmeet Singh is saying he wants some time to reflect. He's, you know, there's been some musings and some darts thrown at him that say, you know what, you shouldn't keep these guys in power. Uh, or if you're going to keep these guys in power, you should get a, a commitment from the prime minister that there'll be a public inquiry uh, into this. Now, you know, the public inquiries kind of become the default position. But there there are, you know, take the politics out of it. Uh, you alluded to it a moment ago. There are national security considerations that we can't be irresponsible about. So, mm. you know, there might be another path here. Um, and this may, Trudeau may be setting that up, or he may hope that this does the trick. But it all comes back to the fact that they're still getting um, pounded in public opinion for, being evasive, not uh, it looks like they're holding things back or covering up things, and he hopes that this will break the log and that public opinion pileup that's happening on him right now. Tim Powers with us, chairman of Summa Strategies, managing director Abacus Data, talking about um, election interference and what may be happening at a 5:30 news conference still to come with the prime minister. Tim, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You're welcome, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's talk about uh, economic development in this city and educate us uh, ourselves on what is happening and how the city continues to grow. Let's bring in Bruno uh, Paquin, CEO of Adam V. What are they? What sort of research do they do? And uh, and the strength of the life sciences sector in the city of Hamilton. Bruno is with us now. Bruno, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, I'm very good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really pleased to be here. So this is always exciting when we see and hear of these new ventures in Hamilton and things uh, progressing. We remember, you know, back in the day, it was all about steel. We're hearing so much more about the strength of the life sciences sector in the city. First, tell us about Adam V and what you're doing. 
Yes, AdamD is a contract manufacturer. We basically manufacture therapeutic radiopharmaceuticals. And we are, we were created out of the Center of Excellence from McMaster University called the CPDC or the Center for Probe Development and Commercialization. And uh, basically, you know, we, we started uh, way back in 2008 uh, as a non-for-profit. And over the years, we really created a very strong expertise that was internationally recognized. And based on that expertise and uh, the staff that we have, very dedicated team, uh, the quality, the reliability of our manufacturing, we were able to raise $40 million uh, back in August and we launch uh, Adam D Global Radio Pharma with the support of our uh, investors. My goodness, uh, research is one thing. Generating that kind of money and starting uh, an industry like this is something completely different. So this all started I- I- at Mac in, 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 yes. in, in the labs there. Absolutely. Uh, it was uh, the, the effort of Dr. John Valiant, uh, the CEO of the Fusion Pharmaceuticals now, that is also in Hamilton. Uh, Hamilton is really a hub for life science, I would say, and even particularly in radio pharmaceuticals or the medical isotopes. It's, uh, it's right. tremendous what is happening in the region. So um, how often does something that you start researching become a business? I guess in the end, that's what you're hoping. Yes. So, you know, it, it started with some uh, intellectual property that was spun out uh, in a different companies. And what we did at CPDC after that was really, as I said, to create a, a very strong know-how. And that know-how was used by various drug developers all around the world. And they came to us for to manufacture their drug. And basically, out of Hamilton, uh, we are shipping those drugs all over the world. Uh, in Canada, obviously but in the U.S. as well, South America, Europe, Asia, uh, Australia, even in uh, South Africa. So we really have a global outreach, and we have touched the life of thousands of patients around the world. So it, it's really something to be proud of. That is incredible. How, um, how or did it, uh, Bruno, did the global pandemic change things in any way? Did that create opportunity? Did that change how this all played out? Uh, I would say no, not really for us. Uh, the, the only thing that the pandemic did for us was make it very difficult for, to deliver the drug because the mm. drug that we manufacture has a very, very short life, uh, you know, we, we, between four and 12 days, which means that as soon as they are out of the synthesis, we need to ship them. And especially if they go as far as Australia, you can imagine that the smallest glitch in transportation may make the drug unusable at the end because it will expire at some point, right? So during the pandemic, uh, with all the flights that were canceled, the routes that were canceled, it was very difficult to get the drug in time. But despite that, uh, we only missed a handful of shipments and all of our patients were able to get treated despite the pandemic. But other than that, I would have to say for us, it really didn't affect us. Uh, do you do you continue to see the life sciences sector in the city growing? Do you, con- do you see this as a uh, emerging industry here? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, you, you just have to look at what McMaster Innovation Park is, 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 is building, mm-hmm. right? You, we saw the announcement of Omnibio recently. Uh, we, we just launched with 40 million, I mentioned, but with our uh, investors, Avigo, that's a U.S.-based investors, who are looking at raising within the next few months another 40 million. So the, the total amount that we will be investing in that facility would be uh, 80 million just to create this opportunity. And, and you can look around. Life science is very strong in Hamilton. It's, 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 really, it's really fun to see, actually. Another economic development success story, uh, Bruno Paquin mm-hmm. with us, CEO of Adam V, starting at Mac, and the rest is history, as they say. Bruno, thanks so much for the time. Good luck. Congratulations moving forward. Oh, thank you so much. Let's bring in Eric Alper, music publicist and commentator. Reason being, uh, we talked about Leonard Skinner a long time ago and that there was only one original member and that they're still touring madly and now they're not. Will they continue as many do? Eric is with us now. Eric, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Everything's great. It's not every day that I get to open up for the Prime Minister of Canada. <laughs> That's it. And, and you know, hopefully we won't have to cut you off early uh, here and we'll get all of this in. We chatted about Leonard Skinner before and how there weren't very many members left, one, I guess, and now the final one has passed away. Will they, can, I remember you talking about this, the bands that tour after the original members have passed on. Will they continue to do this, do you think? Yeah, I think so. You know, Gary Rossington died at the age of 71 over the weekend, and he was the, the last founding member. Um, this is a really interesting question because I don't know if there is a linear answer to how many original members need to be around and in the band before you can officially call it a band. Or, you know, I mean, look, Paul McCartney can always bring back Wings, but, you know, Ringo Starr, with his all-star band can't go out and call themselves yeah. the Beatles. Um, the guess who hasn't had uh, an original member in a long time, but they're still out of the guess who the birds um, continue to go out, even though that Roger McGuinn was the only founding member. Fleetwood Mac has always been Fleetwood Mac, no matter who's in the band, as long as Mick Fleetwood and John McVie are in there since they kind of created the band and the band has their name on it. So it's really up to the audience and the consumer to decide if they want to part with their hard-earned money over what could be nothing more than a huge glorified cover band, or if they have the spirit of the band inside, even though that there might be no members left. At the end of the day, Eric, is this just not all about whether if everybody's estate agrees that, yeah, you can keep generating revenue as long as we get a piece? Yeah, go for it. A little bit, you know, that's, that's it. That's a little bit of part of it. The, the fact is though that in America, there's something called the Truth in Music Performance Advertising Act. And in 35 states, it requires at least one member of the band on stage performing at the concerts be an original member of the group. So when you see things like the Supremes in Idaho, um, it better have one of the original members in there. Um, when you see the Doobie Brothers, there has to be an original member in there because a lot of these groups from the 50s and 60s, their their members had passed away and really creative thieves would go and just put five or six people together and put them out on tour as the Doobie Brothers or here are the Supremes. Um, so uh, Washington passed this, although it's not a federal thing, it's state by state. Hmm. One member has to be there. And so, you know, but... 
You can get a way around it, though. In fact, Justin Hayward, who's the lead singer and the original songwriter in the Moody Blues, he's going out across Canada this year as Justin Hayward sings the songs of the Moody Blues. So he's not going out as the Moody Blues, but, you know, he's actually putting and dropping his name in there. And I think that's that's a pretty smart way to go. Uh, I didn't know there was such a law in the U.S. that actually prevented you from from doing such a thing. Uh, how much? I mean, we see Journey still, you know, doing well. I mean, you know, I, I've seen shots of of people that have seen these guys are still filling like arenas. Yeah, um, you know, you have artists like Toto or Kansas, um, Stick, Chicago, um, Blood, Sweat, and Tears that had they've got a documentary that's coming out later on this year. Um, David Clayton Thomas isn't in the band, but there are a couple of people who are are holding the torch for them. Um, you know, it goes back to that question. Uh, you know, when I was a teenager, the the whole big thing was, you know, if Roger Waters wasn't in Pink Floyd, can the other three members yeah. Go out as Pink Floyd, and the the answer was absolutely. Um, even though that you know that was really weird at the time. Nick Mason, the drummer of Pink Floyd, obviously can't go out as Pink Floyd, but he is going out on tour performing songs of Pink Floyd under the name Saucer Full of Secrets, which is a Pink Floyd song. But everybody kind of mm. knows who Nick Mason is if you're a Pink Floyd fan. So it's always one of those things where if you need the law. It's there on your side to kind of stop 15 different, the diamonds groups, you know, uh, or, or, you know, the, the, the crew cuts, there can't be 17 different crew cut bands going on out there. Um, but failing that, you know, there could be various other bands where it's like, yeah, I played in drums for five years for this band. And then another band with the same name is like, I played guitar on seven albums. So who gets to do it? Sometimes you got to let the courts decide. Are the Beach Boys still touring? They are. They're touring as the Beach Boys. Um, sometimes they're touring as the Beach Boys starring Mike Love. Um, sometimes Brian Wilson goes out on tour. He cannot use the name the Beach Boys because Mike Love, the lead singer, owns the right to use that name. Um, when hmm. Brian Wilson couldn't go back out on tour um, because of just absolute massive depression and anxiety he let mike love the the singer use the name the beach Boys because he didn't want to hold back the band so when brian wilson goes out he cannot use the beach boys it's brian wilson sings the songs from the beach boys wow all right so what do you know have you heard anything about this live aid type show that's coming out of the uk uh that will uh raise money and support for ukraine uh you two involved in this and such what have you heard yeah, so far the names batted around include U2, the Rolling Stones, and Pink. And it could also be Florence and the Machine, Paul McCartney, and Adele. But we know so far that it's going to be held at Wembley Stadium in the UK on June the 24th. There's been published reports that U2, the Stones, and Pink have already signed on. I'm not convinced of that just yet, but it's going to mark the one-year anniversary of Russian President Putin's full-scale invasion of the Ukraine. And it wants to... These these artists want to continue to keep put pressure and awareness on what is going on over there. Um, pretty great idea. And I think a lot of money is going to be raised for this. In fact, there was a concert that was done um, a couple of months ago with 
Ed Sheeran and Billie Eilish, and they did a televised benefit called Concert for Ukraine that was done last March, and it raised over $27 million. So something like this, when you bring in U2 and the Stones um, and Pink, um, you're going to have a worldwide audience and might not just be for television. You can start to see this on all the carriers of all the networks around the world, plus maybe theatrical and maybe even Netflix and HBO and those places starting to work together on something like this. When will we know if this is a reality? I'm going to guess in the next 48 hours. Um, right now, if you Google those names in the concert for Ukraine, all it says is just a lot of artists that are uh, poised to be announced. If the organizers drop those names without permission, you're going to have Pink and U2 and the Stones absolutely come on out and say we right. are not part of this or that we are indeed part of this. I think that this is just a little bit of a of a media leak just to get people's appetite wetted a little bit. But if it's not going to happen, you're going to know in the next 24, 48 hours. And do these concerts still have the impact that they once did? We remember the Live Aid shows of the 80s and all that stuff. Same sort of thing? I think in terms of audiences, yeah. I, I think it's just as big, if not bigger, because you've got the social media audience who who will run those clips on TikTok and Instagram and talk about it on Twitter. What doesn't happen is just that sticky effect. I mean, we're still talking about Live Aid, and that happened back in 1986. Um, yeah. or Sorry, 1985. I, I, I'm not 100% convinced that if this concert happened on the day that it's supposed to, that on June the 24th, I wonder if anybody continued to talk about it on June 27th when we were talking about Live Aid and Band-Aid and, and the concert for SARS in Toronto for mm. years and years afterwards. I think that there's just way too much stuff going on um, that's vying for our, our attention. But um, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Eric Alper with us, music publicist and commentary, talking about the possibility of a live aid type show for Ukraine. Also, uh, the passing of the final founding member, one of the founding members of Leonard Skinner. Eric, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you so much for having me. We'll talk soon. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Hey, hi, this is Mike from Hamilton. I'd like to uh, thank Gary Rosenton for all the great music. He and uh, his band members, Leonard Skinner, created uh, You Were the Last Rebel. Uh, rest in peace and fly high, Freebird. 